Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Matthias and Julian, general partner and partner at Speed Invest Marketplaces and Consumer Team. Speed Invest is one of Europe's most active early stage investors with more than 600 million euros of assets under management. And Matthias and Julian's investment team focuses on backup startups who are shaping the future across B2B and B2C at the intersection of marketplaces, e-commerce 2.0 and consumer subscriptions. Not only are Speed Invest one of Europe's top VC players, they're also experts in building community and network effects, which is something we can't get enough of here at the European VC. Before starting today's episode, we'd like to introduce you to 4Degrees. 4Degrees is the VC Relationship Intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, 4Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by automating the deal-making process. To learn more about how 4Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit 4Degrees.com. AI forward slash EUVC. Matthias and Julian, welcome to the show. It's so great having you here. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Great to meet you. Guys, before we start, I just want to take the time to learn a bit more about you. You've built one of the leading funds, especially in your vertical in Europe. So Speed Invest is, of course, big and great, but your consumer marketplaces team is, is a team that I've been following quite a bit. So I, I'm super excited to be talking to you. So guys, do tell us a bit about yourselves and also the story of the marketplaces team. Yeah, so I'm Matthias. I basically spent the last 15 years building and investing in marketplaces, mostly working for different funds and also a little bit in tech M&A. My passion for network effects and marketplaces was already born while studying. actually wrote my thesis on the topic and focused on it throughout basically my career and especially also my investing career. About five years ago, I joined Speed Invest as a partner to actually launch our yeah, marketplaces and consumer practice when we actually started the strategy at Speed Invest to build out dedicated teams around specific topics. And as you know, next to marketplaces and consumer, we also have five other verticals. Maybe I can quickly go through them just for your benefit and the audience benefit, which are fintech, deep tech, SaaS, health, and industrial tech. Uh, next to Marketplaces and Consumer, which is uh, run by Julian and by myself. And yeah, maybe uh, I hand it over to Julian to let him introduce himself. Thank you, Matthias. I uh, joined fairly recently, um, over a year ago, so um, the, the team was already set up. I knew the team quite well as they invested in startup I co-founded, um, which is T-Mobility, our first uh, Marketplace fund. I then transitioned a little over a year ago from portfolio to partner, so to say. My background is in business. I did quite some ventures in the mobility space, some of them together with the Boston Consulting Group, BCG um, Digital Ventures, which were the ownership. Uh, my, my share, I'm, I was not a sh really shareholder, so I decided to do it myself. 
started Team Mobility, which is yeah now a great performer in the first fund. Uh, how do you think uh, BCG would have liked to have had a slice of that cake? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, probably. So guys, uh, before we dive into network effects, which is a topic that Grace is actually very passionate about, so I'm sure he's very excited. I'd like to deep dive a bit into consumer marketplaces as a vertical. And I think the best way to start is ask you, uh, Matthias, because you were part of the inception team there. Give us a quick rundown of the thesis and the strategy and what you guys believe in uh, at Speed yep. Invest in this team. Sure. Actually, the team was first called the, the Network Effects team because this <laughs> is really at the, the core of our hypothesis. We just found out over time that it's a little bit hard to communicate to the outside world. Uh, not, not everyone gets it, so to say. So we kind of rebranded into marketplaces and consumer. But uh, network effects remain, of course, very important to us. And why we like them is very simple, because they basically create a kind of natural mode around the business over time and turns any company that benefits from them into a winning business eventually and therefore into hopefully a very valuable business, which obviously from a venture capital point of view makes a lot of sense and is very important. How they do that is obviously that marketplaces and Companies that benefit from network effects are following a kind of winner-takes-most or winner-takes-all dynamic, whereby basically all supply and demand is aggregated on one platform eventually. There are, of course, also sometimes downsides to that because a lot of concentration of power can also lead to misuse of that kind of power. And I think we see also with, for example, the Web3 movement, a lot of tendencies to fix that basically and new ways to approach that, but still keeping the network effects element because it is so powerful. It's an interesting current debate maybe, but without going too far uh, to which extent the network effects are as strong in Web3 versus in, so to say, Web 2. Yeah. Could we um, jump into the Web 3 conversation a bit? <laughs> yeah. But before doing that, could you maybe think of the audience here as your LPs understanding why is network effects businesses a fund focused mm -hmm. on that better mm -hmm. position than others? And also, how do you go about executing on the thesis? Super curious to hear how you would put that. Sure. So maybe first I can do a very quick explanation of what network effects are. Yeah. yeah sure. I mean, I, I guess most people know, but it might, might be helpful so that we have a common understanding. So really the basics of this is really simple. It basically means that with every user that joins a platform or joins a product and starts using a product, the utility of the product of the platform increases to all existing users and also the pull in basically for new users increases as well. So the very traditional and best example of this is the telephone network, yeah? <laughs> because it makes no sense if you're the only person that has a telephone, nobody can call you. But the more people have a telephone, the more it makes sense for you as an individual to also have a telephone and be able to talk to everyone and communicate with everyone and the higher the utility for, for everyone as the network grows. And then, of course, Facebook, etc., other great examples of that. And I think you can see exactly by those dynamics and those companies how valuable these networks become and how powerful they also become and that they provide, from an LP point of view, a great return profile yeah? because you actually become the market, basically, yeah? and you can take a cut of whatever transaction is being facilitated on your platform without, for example, having to hold any inventory yourself. So it has also very nice 
uh, margin profile, purely looking at the business model compared to other business models. And if you look at uh, multiples uh, of companies, I think software multiples as in SaaS and marketplace multiples are among the highest in tech and in general. There's also multiple research on the topic, but I think by now we have more than eight or nine of the most valuable tech companies in the world, or actually the value, most valuable companies in the world that are built on top of, of network effects. Yeah? So talking about Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Google, uh, etc. I'm super curious, and this is almost a policy question, <laughs> but <laughs> there's not much teaching in universities about network effects. It's something that you might browse over in an entrepreneurial course or something like that, or a strategy course for one class or something like that, and then you've learned what's there to learn about that concept. So that means that the knowledge in how to build marketplaces and build network-based businesses mm. isn't very widely dispersed, especially, uh, this is my experience, especially if you then layer that over the number of entrepreneurs trying to build network-based businesses. Yes. So there's definitely a body of knowledge lacking. How do you look at that when you look at all the startups that you meet? I mean, it's changing now, of course, the NFX fund from the US, of course, they are doing also a lot on the content side on educating people about the concept. Ourselves, we are obviously doing quite a bit. Also, Peter Thiel has been writing about it. If you read his various books or specifically Zero to One, there's mostly on the VC side, even on if you look into the what the benchmark capital partners have been writing about or Union Square Ventures. They have been doing a lot on that front. There's also some research going on. There's a great book that I can actually recommend to everyone that wants to educate themselves on the topic, which is called Platform Revolution. Uh, probably a lot of people know, but I think this is a great basics to approach the topic. But you are right. There's probably not much about kind of company building and how to weave network effects into your business. Even like bigger companies are only becoming platforms over time or eventually. Think about something like Salesforce, for example, that eventually becomes a platform but didn't start as one. Interestingly, also most of the companies, of course, that we are investing into because we are investing so early, they don't have network effects as in visible in, in the product or in the usage. It's purely theoretical at the time of our investment, right? It's more about how do people think about it And do they build this into the way how they approach the product and building the platform, etc.? That would be what I would be very interested or curious in understanding. Because building a network business is different from other businesses and it requires founder business slash market fit. You know, yeah. How do you test for that in entrepreneurs? Maybe back to your former question. I personally am starting business in, in Munich and uh, Munich LMU, CTM as well as the West Coast. I had the feeling I learned so much about network effects. But exactly what Matthias said, like I would have not really known how to build a business um, with that. So in theory, like I learned the definition probably, I don't know, several times, um, but that doesn't help you much. I think what we look as we are so early, we look at the team in the first place and the connection, like how, what is always super important for me is like how do people, founders approach product, how's their, their love for the product and how the feeling for the, for the market. And there you can sense already, do they have an idea how to acquire the first customers and maybe even not acquiring them, maybe not even paying for them. 
um, but really get the first customers for free that then get more and more customers excited. This, of course, a very important part, especially as we are mostly investing pre-seed and seed. I was going to ask exactly that to create here some common level of understanding with all our listeners. How early are you getting in? Can you put some more words to that? Because pre-seed seed yeah. are terms that are getting really hard to define nowadays. Maybe to build on Julian's <laughs> point, of course, we are investing even pre-launch, pre-product, sometimes also post-launch, but many times, especially our latest deals, we invested before the company even launched or for there was even a product. So it's based on an idea and there is a team. They have obviously done some research or talked to some potential customers, etc. but that's it. And to build on Julian's point, um, of course, as a startup, you don't have much money. So you can't just spend a lot of money on acquiring users early on. And we know that marketplaces are all about solving the chicken egg problem. So if you think about very simplistic in terms of supply and demand, and bringing on, for example, demand onto a platform. You could obviously go out and spend lots of money online marketing, but as a startup, you don't have that. So one way to break into an existing market is obviously through a superior product experience, right? And, and basically get people excited for your product, for your proposition, because it's 10 times better than what is on the market already, or it's really solving a very strong pain for a very specific needs and a very specific problem and from there on you can then branch out into kind of solving a problem for a bigger audience maybe once you have solved it for a smaller one so i think it's a lot about this kind of product side of things that's maybe also specifically julian's expertise here and then later on you can maybe when you raise more money from a company point of view uh, kind of leapfrog a little bit different stages by actually overspending maybe a little bit on the marketing side and acquiring customers or both on the supply demand side or if it's multi-sided on on any side yeah. with simply uh, the money that you have raised or that we also help them raising uh, later on i believe that to be a good investor or have or even be a good founder in marketplaces and consumer space it takes quite a different skill set and I'm, I'm personally more exposed to more b2b approaches i'm also making this the most out of it in terms of learning so i'm really curious to hear you know what are you guys focused on providing value to your portfolio founders because there is a unique skill set here and when we're talking about network effects we've been dancing around this topic right many kind of know what it is but that's the limit of what they actually understand right spinvest here is a special place because we not only have 40 investment managers but also quite a large team uh, really supporting our portfolio. We call them Platform Plus team, and yeah. these are yeah, specialists. For example, what I'm referring to your question, um, helping with growth. So really experienced people that look at your, for example, your, your funnel and help you um, optimize every little step or give you a new perspective or give you, if you are a consumer company, then bring in some B2B experience, what they know from other companies. So it's really hands-on support we can provide also in HR and some other fields. For me, uh, most importantly, it's for free to the founders because there's some others that provide operational help but comes often with a transfer pricing, which I find difficult as when you have to pay for something and um, feel maybe obliged to get the VC help and paying for that, that's uh, not how you should do it. So um, everything is for free um, for our portfolio. Yeah. And most of the companies also take advantage of that. Julian, you came from a portfolio company. And so how early did Speed Invest get involved 
with Tyr. And give us the other side now, the other view, right? The view of the founder who is on the other side of the table. Yeah, so I'm, I'm being portfolio. I know how it feels to have these guys <laughs> on your cap table. How early did they come in? Super, super early. To be honest, pre-everything, that was the idea. However, I alluded to it earlier, I did something similar before. So I already um, helped building a business together with the Boston Consulting Group, which was also very similar to what Tier did back then or um, does now. Um, also, it was a moped sharing service active in Berlin, Paris and Madrid. The team knew that we can pull it off. We just had to execute on what we already know. To answer your question, I think when we signed the term sheet, it said that the company is in foundation. The company didn't even exist at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So that is how early it was. But to be fair, as Julian said, it was obviously a very experienced team of people that I had also previously worked with before, that I knew uh, Julian and I knew each other. Uh, Lawrence, the CEO of Tier, I had invested in his previous company. Matthias, the CTO, I also invested in his previous company. So they are all accomplished entrepreneurs in that sense and had done it before. And let's also be honest, we've also had seen this model before, both Julian having built Coop before in Berlin, but also in other parts of the world, this model emerging. It probably fits better in our consumer angle than the actual network effects angle. But one mm -hmm. thing that I'm personally always struggling with, so to say, is because what I really like about Tier is but it also makes it a somewhat tougher business than maybe a traditional marketplace is that they obviously own the assets and operate their own fleet. And um, that comes with, of course, heavy investing into that infrastructure. And TIA also has the TIA energy network for swappable batteries. But what, when you look at it from a business model point of view, it obviously also is great to be kind of an infrastructure provider and really own so to say, the rails on which the trains are running, yeah? uh, owning the grid and especially having building this tier energy network comes also with a kind of network effects because it's not only helpful for their own business, but they can also provide that to other businesses, for other companies to use that network and yeah. basically become an infrastructure provider at the same time. And it's a little bit like Amazon that also provides their own infrastructure to other merchants or other e-commerce shops to sell their goods. And then you have massive economies of scale, uh, of course. Yeah. And that can make a business also super powerful. Yeah. You're hinting to something that's really interesting. And I have no idea if you care to comment. And if you don't, we just cut it out. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. It's interesting that you put it the way you did, because I think it hints to another question, which is to finance more capex-intensive activities, as you were hinting to. Yeah. Is equity investing and namely VC uh, the best solution? And do we have the right players in Europe to cater for that needs of capital? Do you get to comment? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also happy for you and to comment as well. But I always said a little bit kind of jokingly that if we would have raised a debt fund also when we raised our first fund to co-invest alongside into almost every company that we have, we could have made a massive difference for A, our portfolio and probably delivered an amazing performance as well on that debt fund. I'm not a specialist in that field, but I can tell you that the majority of our portfolio could actually benefit from this and has in, in one shape or form raised debt funding, a lot of them asset-backed financing, as in the case of TIA, but also other companies 
it's becoming more and more important and increasingly important. And especially also as you scale, actually, it's harder in the beginning because nobody wants to give it to you, right? Because yeah. the risk is so high, etc. You can see it theoretically working, but typically debt providers are much more risk averse in comparison. So they wouldn't give it to you. Even venture debt providers wouldn't do that. Then when it's big enough, like sort of say tier is right now, everyone wants to give it to you, right? And then uh, then you need to be able to consume a lot of it. That's the point, right? So that always only works when you kind of talk, you're talking hundreds of millions, basically. Yeah, That makes it so hard at the beginning because first, you're not able to consume hundreds of millions. And then second, you're too risky. Yeah. Yeah? So if you could bridge that gap, I think there is an opportunity, especially in Europe. I mean, asset light has been a buzzword in VC for the last 10 years, and everybody was talking about, um, I only do asset light and, and so on. However, I truly believe that to deliver some real-life experiences in a superior manner, you sometimes need to invest in assets, especially if you don't have the infrastructure already in place. I mean, Airbnb could utilize existing apartments for the most part. However, um, like electric scooters were just not there. Somebody had to buy them and put them on the street. And we have um, another great example from our recent portfolio called Rouse.life. It's a platform for cabins or tiny houses placed in beautiful remote nature. There are no cabins in these places, so one has to buy them. And of course, the company will not buy or finance the cabins in five to ten years. They will do it with debt. Um, they're already starting to, but the first five cabins, for sure, you have to buy. And we don't shy away from also um, enabling these teams to deliver this customer or here in this, this place hospitality experience. Maybe funny anecdote on this topic is that I think when we did the first round in tier, They had already placed the order, and I think it was like a third or even more, correct me if I'm wrong, Julian, of the full financing round for the fleet for ordering scooters, right? So that's also a bit scary from an investor point of view yeah. when you see that a big chunk of your investment goes into CapEx mm -hmm. and very quickly is gone, basically. We have to be fast. <laughs> yeah, you have to be fast. And that's how you can kind of bridge that at the beginning, maybe. But of course, you don't want to scale by doing that with equity. And if it's something like Rouse or if it's Tio or if it's company like Coded from our portfolio, which is yeah. an iBuyer, it's always kind of similar dynamics. Yeah? I'd love, guys, to dive a bit into the power of Europe in relation to marketplaces and network effects businesses. Because some would argue that we've been very good at copying U.S. <laughs> and putting their stuff in European soil. Where do you see? Where, where are we in this front? I personally think we are in a great place in, in venturing right now. We saw especially the Berlin ecosystem like maturing over time. Rocket Internet and the likes um, have done a very or has played an instrumental role in that. I think more and more founders having a great exit and refueling the, the whole ecosystem. And you could see the, the same, of course, in, in London and Paris and in other places. However, I think what also changed over the course of the last few years and even fueled by the pandemic is that the ecosystems become even more connected. And it doesn't matter if you're in Paris or even in Eastern Europe, you have access to both great talent and capital. And Speedinvest is a pan-European VC. We are able to invest in, in all geographies, not, not only in, in Europe, but also beyond. For us, it's a great time. One additional point here on the 
maybe advantages, so to say, of Europe versus other parts of the world is, and you were alluding to us copying models that work in the US, which you should also ask yourself, why is that even possible? Typically, US companies focus on the home market. It's very big. It seems homogeneous from the outside. And they focus on conquering that market first before eyeing other parts of the world. That's obviously also the window of opportunities that entrepreneurs have here or also in other parts of the world to build a business. I think what we have been good at in Europe is doing that, so to say. So let's say copy, but then also internationalize. If you look at these businesses, typically it was European companies or European founders, European teams that have brought them internationally, also beyond Europe, because I think we have a very fragmented landscape here. We are used to building products that are multilingual for different markets, cross-border, etc. And I think that makes us very prone or puts us in a pole position to also internationalize beyond uh, European borders. And this is, uh, I think, what has been happening. What I'm very happy to see now is that actually the opposite is also happening now, that European companies are going in the U.S. and uh, some of them actually even buying their kind of U.S. counterparts. So it's not just then, okay, you have the original from the U.S. kind of coming to Europe and maybe buying a copycat in Europe in order to expand geographically, but it's also going the other way around. And of course, we even have also people that actually way more by now that are actually not even copying, but just building their own business. But then again, I think in the consumer world, the world is also so interconnected that people want to have similar products also, right? You maybe adjust them to the local needs and the local market, but it's also hard to say then that everyone is copying. It's because that's what people are demanding. This is what consumers want, right? So it makes also sense in a way to do it. Whether or not you want to copy doesn't really, uh, so to say, play a role yeah? or who is first. It's like more like who does it best. We've had a couple of guests on our podcast actually that share um, Julian's profile, right? From founder of a portfolio company to VC firm and then uh, some of them, you know, go directly to partner level, others less, doesn't really matter. It's always an interesting route into venture, which interests a lot of our listeners, basically. And I'm curious to hear, Julian, your thoughts and your reflections about that process and how it went from being an investee into being basically a partner in the full sense of that word. Yeah, happy to answer. I mean, for me, VC was not totally new. I started my early career after a PhD in, in business in a venture fund, um, working for a French fund um, in their small office here in Berlin. So I already had a good taste of what it feels like to be on that side. Then I was on the venture side for a while. So for me, the transition is probably was much smoother than for others, especially knowing the team already. And for me, it feels right now um, to be in the, the right place. I loved uh, the really early stages of venturing, especially in, in pre-seed and seed. That's where I also feel I can add the most value to our founders. I think what was also helpful was that Julian had also been co-investing with us as an angel quite a bit. So, of course, lots of our entrepreneurs also in the portfolio and, and maybe those that have already made some money or have some spare money are also investing themselves as angels. And we often also co-invest with them. So you get to know each other also as co-investors, so to say, and not only in an investor-founder relationship in that sense. And I think that also helps then and is maybe yeah, provides for an easier transition, so to say, from founder or builder to, to investor. Yeah. Guys, 
I need to ask you because we're all VC geeks here and our audience as well. And there is one network business that seems to have or network business model that seems to have many startups vying for right now in Europe, which is who will first replicate AngelList in Europe. And I, I can't help but think that you guys have looked at at least three that are out there raising capital for their models now. I'm curious to hear your perspectives and do also disclose if you've chosen to invest in one of them. We have not yet invested in any of them. This we can disclose, I guess. It's a multifaceted question, I would say, because there's different angles. To it. You can look at it from, a, let's say, more legal and technical point of view and even angelists themselves have so to say tried or still trying to conquer europe and are struggling with it and maybe in a way have even given up on it to a certain extent <laughs> yeah because it's it's obviously one of the points that we alluded to earlier that the european landscape especially jurisdictional landscape is so scattered and in some countries, it's fairly easy to run the whole investment process. And then there's other countries, including Germany, where it's quite cumbersome and old school and it doesn't look like the system is changing anytime soon. And you always hear how, for example, American investors are complaining about the whole closing process of uh, German companies. I think that is somewhat standing in the way. If you think about Angelist the way it really is in the US, right, where you can actually run your own fund on it, you can create SPVs, you can create syndicates very quickly, directly invest in companies and all that is not really possible in the proper sense of it in Europe, at least not to my knowledge right now. And I think it will probably come down to always, how to say, because of that challenge to local solutions, so to say, maybe attacking a specific market first, it's not possible otherwise. You can't attack all of the markets at once or Maybe there is a way and I'm not aware of it, uh, but I imagine it to be very tough. But if you just ask me about whether or not we should have it, I think it makes a lot of sense. And looking yeah. also at the emerging ecosystem, more and more angels, more and more money in the market. Julian also earlier said that money is flowing back into the ecosystem because of exits. And there's lots of also angel activity, also angel syndicates being formed. And they're also somewhat operating in a gray space if you just look at kind of fund legalities, so to say, depending on the jurisdiction. But I think something needs to happen there, no doubt about it. And there's enough activity, I guess, to have enough liquidity for a platform. Plus okay. then also thinking about just even further ahead, if you think about secondaries and all that kind of stuff, I think there's a lot of opportunity where U.S. in a way is, is leading the way. Also, if you think about Qatar, for example, right? We are actually always discussing in the fund also that we should or should be using Qatar, but Qatar is not yet made for uh, the European market, right? So mm -hmm. it would make uh, lots of sense to have kind of European version of Qatar. And then you can, of course, build a secondary market and all that stuff on top of it. Super interesting. I, I had to ask because it's something that all of us, uh, many of us are meeting in our day-to-day -day work. So next, something that the uh, current Ukrainian-Russian crisis has allowed us to be spared off for some time on LinkedIn, which is constant posts on Web3 and how amazing it is. <laughs> yeah. So given this short repast from having to view all those, I do think that we should jump into it, hear your views on on how Web3 is poised to change marketplaces and network-based businesses in general. As I mentioned earlier already, we are also have a bit different views inside the team. It's like something that we are obviously observing quite closely. And I'm probably a bit more on the conservative side of the spectrum. 
And then maybe Julian is a bit more on the kind of progressive side of the spectrum, maybe, if you wish. Maybe it's going to be a great debate then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think long story short, for what I mentioned earlier already is that obviously some of the intentions behind the Web3, of course, go against some of the fundamentals of, let's say, Web2 platforms. Yeah? Also for some of which for the right reasons, because you can see that the concentration of power in conglomerates like Facebook, for example, have been leading to bad results for the end user, for the consumer at the end of the day, and also below par consumer experience at the, at the end of the day. However, you could also argue that if they just get lazy because their network effects are so strong, You could also argue that they will dry out and die at one point, so to say. It will obviously last a long time and, and or take a long time in order to get there. But we also see that from a political side, there's obviously a lot of movement to change the dominance of these platforms and maybe also break some of the network effects to make space for other players to come in. Personally, I'm still struggling. I don't have an answer, to be honest, because lots of concepts try to keep this the power of network effects also in Web3, But at the same time, you do things that go fundamentally against it. So how do you marry that? How do you bring that together? And this, I still struggle to see sometimes how that could work in practice. Yeah, I don't know. We see a lot of pitches labeled Web3 and then you look under the hood and still the, also the, the most successful out there are right now pretty centralized. Um, if you look at NFT marketplaces, for example, or maybe crypto exchanges they were a little bit earlier we have bitpanda in our portfolio i would not label that for web3 however we see more and more that are trying to be where you have the full um, decentral idea but i think we are not there yet from what i see but it will be interesting how it how it plays out However, we and a lot of VCs are figuring out right now how to invest because also the fundamentals are quite different. Typically, we take a certain percentage, like 10 to 20% in the first rounds. In traditional businesses, in a Web3 company, you don't necessarily want to have that concentration, even if it's only 10 to 20%. So mm. a lot of crypto funds look more at, let's say, 2% to 5% or so and are the biggest shareholder already. So I think it's also a lot of new investment um, logics that come into place and traditional VCs are adapting to that. I'm personally super excited about the whole space. Like for a moment, leave the debate about central versus decentral um, aside. I think just like what NFT gave us, just like the marketing, pure marketing mechanics you can have in that space are like a new universe in itself, which is fascinating, I think. And we will see a lot of people that are not crypto native, so to say, but would have founded an e-scooter startup five years ago. And they now go into Web3 and find great business models there. So from my side, really, really excited what's out there. And I think we already did some investment in the space, but there will be a lot more. We're trying to do more, definitely. I think it's also a learning experience for us, to be very honest, right? So we are also learning, we are observing And maybe to Julian's point, so thinking about chicken egg, I think with these no new, let's say, marketing capabilities or opportunities that you have in, in really 
We had three native companies. This is also an easier way to basically overcome this initial hurdle and, and basically somewhat build initial liquidity. This is also a nice opportunity to actually build a marketplace and, and overcome this chicken-egg problem in the early days. I think from a more technical point of view, as also Julian alluded to already, investing in real Web3 companies and, for example, buying tokens, etc., or eventually getting tokens, also comes with a different investment profile than traditional venture, where you have uh, rather illiquid assets holding it for a long time. And here you can maybe liquidate earlier. There's a certain element of speculation. Personally, I always said it's closer to stock market investing than it is to uh, kind of early stage investing into a very liquid asset. And you kind of need to marry those two somehow. And uh, it's going to be interesting how that will be done technically. And then even leaving aside the whole taxation issues that come with it, if you think about it from a purely fund setup point of view and all these things. Yeah. A lot of exciting things going on in that space. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> and yes, I don't think that there's any player in uh, this space that's not looking into it and trying to figure out exactly where do you position yourselves. Just before going to the quickfire round, I want to touch on Andrew Chen's book, The Cold Start Problem, because it's been heavily marketed <laughs> in our industry and everyone has seen it and heard of it. And I was surprised just earlier in this call when you mentioned a string of books and authors that you think yeah. that you should be paying attention to. You didn't mention A16. <laughs> oh my gosh, what an omission. No, I think, of course, I think if you have been following him, he obviously has been writing essays or blog posts, etc. Mm -hmm. And I think some of which are even, or most of which are probably even in this book. So I would say this is a... Uh, it's a compilation work. <laughs> exactly. It's a compilation work of also war stories, of course, that, that yeah. are, I think, very, very good and very helpful. And I think it makes it very tangible in practice. However, one thing that you always have to consider is these are way more established companies from our point of view where we are coming from and at the stage at which we are investing. Of course, Andreessen is a much later, or in comparison, much more later stage fund, investing bigger checks, etc. And the companies are typically more advanced than the ones that we are backing. So it becomes more relevant, I would say, at a later stage. But it's, I think it's a great piece of literature and for anyone also in the early stages to prepare and know what is coming up, so to say, and be ready. The marketplace team is running the marketplace conference, so especially Matthias and our co-partner Jeroen. We had Andrew Chen as speaker and presenting this book. So We actually gave it away to everyone participating at the conference for free, so I shouldn't have omitted that <laughs> one. Uh, apologies for that. also had it uh, under the Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit surprised that hearing that name mentioned in that line. But it was more about theoretical yeah, kind of usage, yeah. and I guess that yeah. for more from a theoretical point of view, more the scientifics of it, the platform revolution is a good collection of the basics, basically, mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. Let's not dive further into uh, Andrew Chen's book. Uh, you know, we know that people should be reading it and uh, I'm exactly. sure that most of our listeners are aware of it. So let's go to the quickfire round. We spent 49 minutes having fun. Let's have a bit more and then uh, round it off. Yeah, so Matthias and Julian, these are quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. And I hope you guys are ready. Can we go? Ready. Yes. Awesome. Julian, let's start with you. In marketplaces and consumer, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? I think what I already said, so I'm not trying away or we are not trying away from more asset-heavy models. Um, sometimes it needs some assets to deliver a superior experience. 
Um, so please reach out if you have some assets involved. We are happy to take a look. Matthias, uh, second question of the quick fire out for the to you, which is what would be your three top tips to emerging VCs in Europe who are fundraising? It's a numbers game. The more people you talk to, the higher the chances or the more people you will close in the end. And maybe as a second tip or result of that, the more people also talk to each other and will refer you. And the best LP leads, so to say, are referrals in my experience. And then maybe lastly, it's kind of an obvious one. Founders that you have backed previously are also the best referral that you can get and also great source yeah. of capital for fundraising. I'm kind of sorry you said it's a numbers game and not it's a network effect game. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it kind of one comes with the other, right? There's uh, high, high virality yeah. in referral, of course. <laughs> so third and final question in this one, I'll open up to both of you because um, we're always excited to know what the future stores and the question is what can we expect in the future from both of you individually but also more interestingly from the speed invest consumer marketplaces too few topics that are definitely interesting for us we spoke about web3 that's definitely interesting to us we hope to do more there we have been doing quite a bit and we'll probably also do more in the climate tech space so to say and then in relation to marketplaces as well that's a big topic for us also speed invest as a whole Otherwise, we are probably also just doing more of what we are doing already. And yeah, to keep our name out there and continue more of the good things. Not much to add. I personally will look into the consumer space and are keen to find really beautiful products and founders who, who want to drive and shape experiences um, for consumers. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us, Matthias and Julian. We had a lot of fun. I guess that people could hear that we like network effects and talking about that. So <laughs> thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having us. It was a great pleasure and uh, yeah, a great format. Thank you. Thank you. Four Degrees is the VC Relationship Intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, Four Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by optimizing the deal-making process. To learn more about how Four Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit fourdegrees.ai forward slash EUVC. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.